0: Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. And we'd love to have you watch for the Rebel Educator book launch coming in March of 2022. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm here today with Heather Clark. Heather is founder and CEO of The Learning Advocate. She has over 20 years of experience working with children with developmental delays and disabilities. She's worked on public policy and educational justice for children abroad and in the United States. She advocates for families and children to ensure all children have a safe and appropriate educational environment. She also consults with businesses and organizations to ensure that community events are universally designed and culturally responsive for all. She holds master's degrees in special education, early childhood, elementary education and teaching, and economics. Welcome, Heather.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation. So you are an educator and a disability rights advocate, an activist, and an active dismantler of white supremacy, which is a lot of things. So how do you work within the intersection of inclusion, diversity, and ableism. That's a huge question. So how do you define inclusion, diversity, and ableism to start with? And then look at, you know, how you play in that intersection.
1: Yeah. It does feel like I'm wearing a lot of different hats and juggling a lot of different things, carrying a lot of different balls in the air, as they say. So f- to answer your first question, defining ableism. So there's a textbook definition, and then there's the way that I look at ableism myself as a black, neurodiverse woman with a invisible disability. I look at ableism as the view that there's only one type of right body or only one type of right way of thinking or one right way of having a brain or seeing or being. And everything out of that so-called norm has to be fixed. Like there's a medical model of looking at bodies, at looking at ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of processing, at limb differences, at movement, as opposed to dismantling that, the barriers that keep people with disabilities and people in the disability community from thriving and living their full lives and showing up in any space as their full sense. So to me, that that's what ableism is compared to dismantling ableism. So the way I intersect those things is educating, working with student teachers and working in classrooms to dismantle those barriers. So that a child who processes information differently or a child who has a limb difference or a child who's deaf or has a, a visual difference or who has a, an emotional different can thrive because those barriers are removed so the curriculum is designed differently from the beginning and every person every human can access it or every activity if a business is putting on an activity or if a community is putting on an activity can access it from the beginning so it's a different way of looking at the world it's like How can we look at our world so that every human being can access it? Because we want to look at the world in a way that we see every person the way they are has value, as opposed to, well, this person needs to be fixed. Is there something about them that's not right? Which is an ableistic view.
0: Yeah. How can we create a world that works for all of us instead of trying to fix people to fit into the box of the world we've created.
1: Exactly. So even when I'm, I'm working with parents, let's say they, their child is autistic or their child has an ASD diagnosis, an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. It's not about, well, I need my child to be fixed so that they can function. It's about how do we dismantle the systems in place in that classroom so that child can thrive in the classroom and then thrive in their life. So it's two totally different ways of looking at the system. One is a medical model. So like, let's fix the child so the child can function, or let's dismantle the systems that are blocking the child from thriving in that classroom.
0: Can you share an example or a story of working within a classroom or working within a school district where this has worked really well?
1: Yes, I know that in my district, some of the spaces that I've worked at, particularly are, I focus a lot on early childhood because that's really a key place where we could do universal design. We can really start when children are very young. And I know in some of the pre-K and kindergarten and first grade classrooms where I've worked, I try to make sure that, for example, with writing, that I allow children to express their thoughts with a lot of different types of materials. So if a child is talking about their family, they can show their family with blocks, with puppets, with drawings, with cards, with art. So there's many multiple ways that they could show their mastery of the curriculum. And that is through universal design for learning. So we have to have. Multiple means of them showing that they understand whatever lesson that you're doing and multiple means of assessing that comprehension. So it shouldn't just be, okay, I am here as a teacher and I am sharing this lesson. Now write about it, write a sentence. Because what if a child is having difficulty with their fine motor skills? What if a child really can express themselves more beautifully through their artwork or through a song or a dance. So we want to create a space in a classroom where each child has a way to express what they know and how they can communicate that across. So I've seen really great success with that in classrooms that I've worked with, where I've had students say, look, I'm a writer. I'm a writer because they've drawn a picture to show what we've worked on in like a social studies lesson. And they are a writer because drawing is the first type of writing. Scribbles are actually the first type of writing.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's a great way to dismantle ableism, creating inclusion, and it works for everyone, right? So it's not just for the child who's been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. It's not the entire class is doing a drawing, but you can do a drawing or use puppets or, you know, or dance or however you want to express your knowledge, but we're all going to express our knowledge this way. It's how do we open that up for everybody to each be their unique self and to feel included and to feel that sense of belonging. Right. And thrive. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about inclusion, how how do you define inclusion?
1: For me, inclusion can't just be something like an accommodation or a modification. Like, you know, here's a little ramp so you can access this little thing that's kind of like an add-on as an afterthought. And a lot of times that's what we see in classrooms or in community events or in businesses. It has to be something that to truly be inclusion, it has to be something that is built in from inception. So it has to be universally designed. So I have to see, to feel included, that when you were designing that plan from the inception, you wanted me to be there. Whether you were thinking of all genders, all sexuality, all sexual orientation, all types of family structures, all types of abilities, disabilities, all races, all social classes, that you made sure that all human beings could show up in their full self and thrive at that event, in that classroom, in that business. Otherwise, it's just really like an add-on and you can tell that it's not true inclusion. That's what inclusion looks like to me. It's truly authentic because I could see that it was from the beginning designed so that everyone can access it.
0: It's a beautiful vision. And I feel like that's not the way things are often designed. (laughs) They're put together the way we've always done them. And then, oh, we need to include these people. How do
1: we fit this in? How do we add that on? Exactly. And you could tell the difference between the two, right? Because when it's intentional from the beginning, you go into the space and you can feel like, wow, they really want me to be here. They really want me to be here.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you've been doing this work and working with students in educational justice for almost 20 years. Have you seen attitudes or the way of doing things shift over the past 20 years and and if so, like how has that changed over time?
1: Yeah, I've definitely seen a major improvement. Yay! (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely seen a major improvement. I've seen a lot more awareness around disabilities, thank goodness. I've seen a lot of change in people's language, which is great. I still see a lot of people who are not disabled talking for people in the disability community, so that there still needs to be a lot of work done there. So really now this next phase has to really be highlighting the voices of those who are disabled or those of us in the disability community, letting us speak for ourselves, even in in the educational space, listening to autistic voices about autistic issues, listening to people with limb differences about, you know, what they want in terms of like mobility issues, listening to the deaf community with a capital D about what they want in terms of the issue that ASL is not taught enough and they need more dual language programs, that the blind community wants more Braille programs. So there needs to be much more focus on listening to people in the disability community and the intersection on disability and race and the marginalization of Black and Brown and Asian disabled people. But I have definitely seen a major improvement and that where children, especially and adults who had disabilities, were always in the background. Now I can see there is more inclusion. You know, there will be more like not in the background. I remember in school so many years ago that children with mobility issues were in the basement. So I'm so glad that we're not seeing that anymore, at least in my area where I work. But we still have so much more work to do.
0: Yeah. I tell the story, you know, when I was growing up, special education was like the corner of the school and it was a closed door and it had a little tag on it that said special education. But the door was always closed and like you just didn't go in there. The students had a separate lunch hour. They had a separate PE. Like it was all kept very segregated. Yeah. And it wasn't in a basement, but it was still very othering. And I think there's a lot of places where we're still doing that with our students with mobility issues or other disabilities right. where they're in a separate space and they're not, they're not included. The space wasn't designed for them.
1: right.
0: And I think that's something that we're overcoming and that we need to continue to work on overcoming as a national public school <laughs> challenge yes. is how do we, as we redefine and as we grow, how do we create these spaces and expectations and curriculum From a universal design angle, how do we create it for everyone?
1: Right. Because the disability community, we are the largest group in the world. If you put us all together in terms of gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, we are the largest community in the world, right? People with disabilities, visible, invisible. And it's growing because it includes babies and elderly. And a lot of people acquire disabilities as they age. So this is something that we have to face as a nation and really work to dismantle our ableism. It benefits the entire nation to have and to create universally designed everything.
0: That's a good segue into dreaming as a visionary for a moment. If you could create your own utopian school, and design the system, <laughs> what would that look like?
1: <laughs> I, I fantasize about that often. I mean, I don't play the lottery at all, but I always say, like, if I could win the Lucky Four, whatever they have here in New York, I always say, oh, I would build my own school. And it would be free and it would be completely accessible for kids with mobility issues and accessible. You know, it would have a giant sensory gym for OT and PT. It would be completely multilingual because, you know, we're New York. So I would have speech therapy and play therapy and floor therapy in Mandarin, Spanish, Arabic, English. And then if I need other languages, we'll find people. We would have a giant lending library for families and multi languages an art studio for art therapy, music therapy. We would have a lactation room for lactating parents. And a nursery and maybe some sort of doula service for birthing people, a baby-wearing class for parents, every kind of support that any parent needs. Psychologists that are you know multilingual, social workers that are multilingual, a one-stop shop that especially reaches out to marginalized families that can't access services. That have difficulty accessing services here in New York City specifically and that families could come to and feel comfortable because they can get services in their own language that are culturally responsive and that kids can come in and that they would love, love to go to school every day. You know, so yeah, they would get the reading, the writing, the math, but they would also have their OT right there. They would have their speech right there. They would have their social work right there. They would have their counseling and their play therapy all there. So they don't have to travel. One hour on the subway to one OT and, and one hour on the subway to the PT and one hour on the subway to the. No, it would all be in one place. That would be my dream school. Rebel educators, Heather needs funding to open
0: her dream school. <laughs> this sounds amazing. <laughs> and so needed, so needed, you know, to have that hub of education and understanding and belonging and putting together all the pieces for all of the students who can benefit from. All of the things.
1: (laughs) You mentioned all of the things. And and of course, like some sort of food pantry. We have to have like a food pantry and free diapers and all that kind of stuff too for families. That goes without saying. Yeah. But I should say it. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be a full social services hub for young families. Yeah. That would be my dream school. So basically, you come and you say, you need it. We get it for you or we figure out a way to help you get it you're worried that you're going to be deported. Okay. We hook you up with like a free legal service to help you. You're worried you you can't pay your rent. Okay. We hook you up with that as well. We know that families with kids with special needs have a lot going on. And if you're in a marginalized community, it's even more. So I would want that school to help you even more. You're a busy working mom and, you know, an emergency happened, you can't find childcare. We hook you up with childcare. That's what we need, right? We need community care. And that also dismantles ableism. It does. And white supremacy, right? Like that's where, you know, like community care is like that mutual aid and community care is what we need.
0: Yeah. And it brings back the idea of, you know, it takes a village. How do we all work together to support each other and help each other through all those, I'm going to say small, but they don't feel small in the moment, daily problems. When your caretaker calls in sick, that's a big problem in the moment. (laughs) And so how do you quickly solve that through a model of community care and having people to rely on and a fallback plan and having that safety net that just isn't there for so many? So many, so many of us.
1: I mean, this pandemic really showed the burden on so many of us. So many of us don't have that. And I think, you know, it's been especially hard for parents of children that have disabilities and people with disabilities. And we need that community care.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's harder on families during normal times. You see higher rates of divorce, more financial challenges. It's really expensive to have a child with different needs. Yeah. And trying to serve like all of the therapies that you mentioned in the OT and the PT and the speech and looking at music and art and horses and right, like all of the things that you could look for for support and for help. These things are expensive. They're very <laughs> expensive.
1: So imagine if you had one place where you could get it all or almost all or we could help refer you and give you that support. And it's sad to me because I think as a nation, we can provide that for families and we can do a better job and we need to come together to demand that. And that's one of the main things that I, as an activist that I do here in New York, is really demanding that our city and our state is accountable to families and providing that. And so the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? We have to hold our legislators, officials accountable. Your child has an IEP or IFSP or you're in the process of getting one. That's your child's legal document that they have civil rights and those services must be provided. And you have every right as a parent to demand that those services are provided. You mentioned how working with
0: marginalized communities, um, and I know a lot of your work centers around working with families of color and how that kind of compounds the challenges of working with students with disabilities and working within the school system. You know, how does that affect your work
1: and your outcomes in the school system? It definitely makes it. 10 times harder because you're dealing with the bias of racism plus ableism. So children with disabilities are more likely to be expelled or punished. And Black children are way more likely to be expelled or punished. So a Black child with a disability, you're just compounding that problem even more of bias, of ableism of likelihood to be expelled or punished. The same thing for Latinx children and also in communities that have a high First Nation Indigenous, You see the same rate. So what we've found here in New York City is that even children as young as four and five six years old, they're being handcuffed by police. I mean, there's really nothing that a four or five-year-old can do that warrants being arrested or because they're having a tantrum that they should be arrested. And we see this happening throughout the nation, right? A child has a tantrum, a teacher calls the police on them, they're handcuffed, they're taking out in the back of a police car. It's unacceptable for that to happen for a child with ADHD or a child with autism spectrum disorders or whatever disability the child has. But this is happening so much to our Black children. So this is like a constant battle that I am waging and fighting to stop this push-out of Black children with disabilities being expelled, being punished, being arrested in schools.
0: Wow. It's a lot. It's an uphill battle, and it it shouldn't be. Yeah. You know, we should have the ability to treat everyone as equals and to understand different challenges, different disabilities, and be able to treat those accordingly Right to support and help each child so that they learn how to properly function, how to work within society, how to be productive citizens. And when we're handcuffing four-year-olds, that's definitely going against how we create and teach and grow inclusive, productive
1: societies. Exactly. And their white peers who engage in the exact same behavior are not arrested. So we know it's bias and racism. It's not, oh, well, this child is engaging in more dangerous, injurious behavior it's literally not true. Like they are engaging in the same behavior. This child is being arrested because they're black. So this is something that we have to fight for. And we have to be aware of these statistics. They are national. This is a national problem. Absolutely.
0: To highlight the race difference. I told a story recently of how my kids would actually chase down the police because they often have stickers. And so they would run around, you know, if we were at an event, they would run around and actually seek out the police officers so that they could ask for stickers. And a friend looked at me and she's like, you know, that's the definition of white privilege. Like, nobody other than white people are looking for the police and asking for stickers. Like, there's a big difference there between feeling safe and feeling like that's a place you can go for help and for stickers and feeling like if you make one wrong move, you're going to be handcuffed and taken away from your parents and right. questioned. Right, That's a big difference and a big problem. Definitely. Stepping into something a little lighter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a founder of an elementary school. I run a small school in California. And so I love to hear people's stories from elementary school. So can you think of a story or something that you remember from your elementary school years?
1: I can think of many, but I think you want a good one. Right, not a bad one.
0: <laughs> you know, whatever comes to mind, because it's those things—it's those things that changed our emotional state that stand out in our minds. And sometimes those are good, and sometimes they're not.
1: Well, we want to stick with lighter, so I'll so i think of something <laughs> good. So Halloween is like the biggest holiday in the world to me because I just love dressing up. And one year I dressed like Michael Jackson. My mom makes the world's best costumes and i have passed on my love of halloween to my two kids and so literally like the day after halloween i'm like what am i going to be next year so every year i would always win the halloween cost contest and the year that i was michael jackson i have the best costume ever i know how michael jackson's a very problematic figure but this was way back and i don't want to say when but a long (laughs) time ago because i'm old and you know it was before we knew anything about problematic, whatever. And way before he had like 10 nose jobs. And I had like the red jacket and the sparkly glove and the loafers. And I just remember feeling so amazing walking in the Halloween parade around the school in my Michael Jackson thing. That just really sticks out in my mind. The one thing that I was thinking about was the sparkly glove. I'm like, tell me she
0: had the sparkly (laughs) glove.
1: I had the sparkly glove. I had the sparkly glove. Yep, I had the sparkly glove. And you see, I have the very curly, curly, curly hair. My mom sent me the picture the other day. And I was like, so it's very top of my mind. Because, you know, our kids just did the Halloween parade thing at school. Mm -hmm. But they call it Storybook Character Day now. So it's inclusive. Not every family celebrates Halloween. And they have to dress as a storybook character. Which I love. I think it's really awesome, but it just made me think of it because my mom was like, "Look at look what I found in the back of my closet. This picture of you dressed up." And I was showing my kids, and they're like, "Mom, who are you?" <laughs> I was like, "They don't know who Michael Jackson is." <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that really sticks out of my mind. Those little things like that that just really made school a lot of fun.
0: Around Halloween, we often listen to Thriller. And so I was telling my kids how it would come on MTV at the top of the hour. And it was a 15 minute music video. But there was a point in time where they played it every hour. And so we would all like watch the clock and we'd be outside playing. And then we'd run inside so that we could watch the thriller video. And then we'd go back to playing. But like this was a really big deal to make sure that you got to see the video.
1: Yeah, I loved that song. And at the same time, I was scared of the video. Oh, yeah. And zombies were terrifying. Yeah. They were like, out of the ground. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Heather, how can people get in touch with you? So the best way people can get in contact with me right now is through my LinkedIn and Instagram as I'm building my website. And my next activist events are going to be through parenting decolonized. I'm going to be doing some workshops on dismantling ableism and anti-blackness in the parenting community. And I'm hopefully working on a conference that focuses specifically on that. So we're going to be working specifically with families and educators on how ableism shows up in classrooms and in our communities and dismantling that and how we can create more universally designed activities, classrooms, and community spaces.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for all of the work that you do. Thank you for your candid conversation today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator
0: podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators.